Well, at least I don't have to remember to turn my mic on this time. <laughs> In this last session, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. <clears throat> this is a parable that's actually in the sequence of about five parables. I'll say something more about the sequence in due course, but what I'll read and what we'll spend most of our time on is the parable of, well, the NIV heading has the bags of gold. Some versions have the parable of the talents. I'll explain why bags of gold comes up in NIV. These are parables of the kingdom. So when it begins again, it will be like, the it refers to the kingdom. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there are many kinds of waiting. 
couple on their honeymoon, sitting on the beach, watching the sun go down, hoping the moment will never end. That's one kind of waiting. A woman with her sixth cycle of chemo waiting for the nausea to pass. That's another kind of waiting. Knowing you have a terminal disease, not sure how fast it's going to go, but you have pancreatic cancer and the doctors are not going to do anything more than give you palliative care. That's another kind of waiting. Waiting for your wedding, the date is set. That's another kind of waiting. I like to remember that my son, who's now 30, when he was born, well, my wife declared, my wife is only 5'1", she's short, and she declared to the world that she was going to have an elephant. She looked like it too. <laughs> Had to have a C-section. She was, he was too big to go anywhere. He was a big bruiser. He came out like a football player. And he never stopped looking anything else other than that. He was born big. He is big. He's, he's big today. When he was three or three and a half, he was always hungry. And my wife is of the opinion that there ought to be decent schedules when you eat. You don't keep stuffing their little faces whenever they want it. So when you got close to a meal time, he was mommy's little shadow. When, mommy? When? When? Soon, soon. It's only 15 minutes. Soon, just wait. Very hard to teach delayed gratification to a three-year-old. <laughs> Meanwhile, I might well have been in my study looking at my watch saying, oh, 15 minutes to go. I've got to finish this article. I've just got to finish writing it. I've got to get it off on the email. <sighs> Same 15 minutes. But the waiting looked very different to my hungry little tyke than it did to me. So the question to raise is this. We're Christians, most of us in this room, I'm sure. What should waiting for Jesus look like? You see, one of the great themes in Matthew's gospel is that Jewish, Jewish expectation in the first century of what the dawning of the kingdom would be like uh, was, was really very different from what happened. Most expected that when the Messiah showed up, it, there would be a big bang and it would be all over. To, to use the metaphor, the wheat would be gathered into barns and the chaff would be burned up with unquenchable fire. That, that would be it. It would be the end of the age. It would be climactic and, and reversals and it would be done. But Jesus keeps insisting by parables, by instruction and so on, that the, par that the kingdom actually comes now in a way that isn't expected. So there are parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, like the parable of the sower. He says the kingdom of heaven is like that. It, it doesn't come with a big bang and it's all over. It, it comes like a man who sows seed and some of it falls on unproductive ground and some of it falls and, and, and it's snatched away by birds and some of it falls and, and it produces fruit 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold. That, that's what the kingdom of, of, of God is like. Well, that's not the big bang, is it? 
Well, the Big Bang is still coming, but it's the end. People were just not expecting the kingdom to dawn just quite the way it came. And then Jesus tells another parable. It, it's, it's like yeast in a lump of dough. It's, it, it, it's, it's worked into the dough and it, it changes the whole dough, but it, 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 it's, it's, not, it, it's, it's not sorted all out yet, you see? He tells another parable. It, it's, it's like a man who sows good seed and, and an enemy comes in and, and, and sows weeds everywhere. And the man's uh, followers say, well, let's go in and weed it all out and get it sorted. No, no, let both grow until the end. Let both grow until the end. At the end, there'll be a final accounting and you'll separate the one from the other. But at this point, let both grow until the end. That's not a big bang right now, is it? So there had to be a lot of readjustment in first century thinking to accommodate what Jesus kept saying the kingdom would be like. It, 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 it's dawning now. So that at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. He's reigning. He's reigning now. But it's a contested reign. At the end, there's no contestation anymore. Eventually, some of the parables do end with the angels coming and, and there's a final harvest and a final separation. It's coming, but right now the kingdom is already dawned, it's already advancing, it's already pressing forward, but everything's contested. Everything's contested. It's, it's, it's why people who work with New Testament eschatology, that is to say what the Bible says about the end of things, keep saying in the New Testament there's a constant running tension between inaugurated eschatology, the kingdom has already started, it's already come, it's already here, and futurist eschatology, that it's not yet, we're still praying your kingdom come, do you see? And you live with that tension as Christians. Jesus reigns, now, he's the king, he's the Messiah, it's here, it started. You're in the kingdom or you're not, now. But everything's contested. One day, the division will be absolute. Jesus will return. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And the question becomes, how do you wait for that? Now that's in large measure what Matthew 24 and 25 are about. <clears throat> in 24, 1 to 35, you get a whole lot of the theology worked out about the Lord's return. That's an interesting section. It's complicated. I wish I had time to unpack it, but it would take far too long. But from, one, from 24.36 on, all the way to the end of 25, then you get instruction on how to wait. So for the first half of 24, you get some direction on what it's going to be like. Then for the second half of 24 and all of 25, then you get instruction on how to wait. So how do you wait? Number one. Verses 36 to 44. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by the Master's return. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by the Master's return. Now what will it be like? Well, 38. For in the days of the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, some people say, you know, it's going to be a terrible time in the last days just like the days of Moses. That's not what Jesus said, uh, the days of Noah. That's not what Jesus says. The comparison he draws between the end and Noah's day is not how bad things are, it's how normal they were. 
they're still getting married and having parties and going to birthday clubs and having funerals and getting jobs and finishing high school. They're, they're acting as if nothing's happening. And then the flood came and took them all away. So it will be at the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And then if we didn't get the lesson, it's unpacked some more. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. That is to say, two men in the field are likely to be father and son in those days because a son usually followed his father's footsteps, might be two brothers. And one is taken in the context, apparently taken in judgment, and the other is not. Or two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. In, in, a, in an animal mill, then you had a huge stone that an ox or a donkey pulled around and around and around. In a handmill, you had a basic stone and another stone on top of it with a hole in it where you put in your grain and a stick out one side. And two women would squat on, other side, on either side. And one would pull that stick around and then the other one on the other side would pull the stick the other 180 degrees. Then the first one would pull the stick around, put in some more grain. Gradually the grain would be squashed between the two stones and you get flour coming out the edge, you see? So again, this is likely to be mother and daughter or two sisters, family members, and one is taken in judgment and the other is left behind. In other words, when the Lord comes at the end, when the end finally comes, it's so fast, it's so quick, it's so surprising that there are no times for second thoughts. Therefore, verse 42, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord your, your, your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I've only been broken into once was when I was a student at McGill a long time ago studying chemistry and I had a small apartment with another chap and a storage area downstairs in the basement. Downstairs in that basement we had a locked bin where you could put some things and my father had loaned me a spectacularly wonderful tooled cow leather Satchel. I, I don't know what else to call it. I've never seen one quite like it. Thick, thick, thick leather. leather. Nicely hand-tooled hand and so on. Dad had no money. Where he got it, I have no idea. But he, he, he let me borrow it to take some clothes back and forth to McGill and so on. So I'd stored it down there. And one night I was called by the police. Somebody had spot, spotted something. And I got down there and discovered that some thugs had come around and bashed open the storage bins and my case wasn't even locked, but they'd used very sharp knives and just slashed through everything. The case was completely ruined. There was not, wasn't anything in there. I mean, they could have just pressed a couple of buttons and looked inside, and it was just slashed and utterly ruined. And I thought to myself, if I had known they were coming, they wouldn't have got away with it. <laughs> not because I'm so gifted in the martial arts, but I had quite a lot of friends. I might even have called the police, but when you're 19 or 20, you think you can do things yourself. I guarantee, though, they wouldn't have got away with it, for sure. But I didn't know when they were coming, and I didn't guard against it, so they got away with it. They never did find them. And Jesus dares to compare the coming of the Lord with that. It doesn't mean that when Jesus comes, he comes in a sneaky way like a thief. When you draw an analogy, you, ha you, can't, you can't make the analogy run on all fours. The, the analogy here is the unexpectedness of it, the unpredictedness of it. 
not the moral nature of the coming. Now that's an important observation we'll need to hang on to for in a few moments. So, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by the Master's return. Number two, verses 45 to 51. Wait for the Lord Jesus as stewards who must give an account of their service, faithful or otherwise. In other words, you're not simply looking at the unexpectedness of it, but you've got to give an account. Now, what you discover as you work through these two chapters is that each new story or each new parable that sheds light on how you wait for Jesus incorporates what was done in the previous one or the previous ones and takes you a step farther. So now there's still unexpectedness, but now there's unexpectedness with a matter of accountability. So who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour when he is not aware of, you will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, wait for the Lord Jesus as stewards who must give an account of their service, faithful or otherwise. Number three, chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who know the Master's coming may be long delayed. Now I'm going to assume you know the burden of this parable of the ten virgins. You have to understand something of first century Palestine marriage practices to make sense of the parable. These practices vary from culture to culture, of course. But uh, in much of the Western world today, the chief expense of a wedding falls on the bride's family. But in the first century in Palestine, most of the expense fell on the groom himself. And the way it worked was um, there would be a small ceremony at the, groom, at the bride's place and then a procession through the streets after that ceremony was over to the groom's place. And the main wedding ceremonies and festivities would take place there. That could go on for half a day, a day. If, on the other hand, he was posh and had a lot of money, the wedding ceremony and celebration could go on for a week, and he'd be providing all the food and all the drink and might be in a walled compound. It would be quite a big event, you see? So it starts off basically family-only at her place, or her brother's place, her father's place, whatever festivities take place there, and then through the streets of the city to his place, sometimes a torchlight parade if it takes place at night, and the guests who were supposed to join in at the other end would, would be waiting along the road and join in in the procession, do you see? that They would know when it was happening and what date it was and roughly what time. And so, so, so we find these ten virgins who are invited to the party. And five are wise, we're told, and five are foolish. The wise ones realize, listen, these, uh, these festivities sometimes take a long time. They say they're coming by at 9.30 at night, but uh, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. We'd better be ready, not only with our lamps, but with some extra oil for our lamps, because it could be midnight, it could be one, it could be two. And the foolish ones, they have their lamps, but they don't bring any emergency oil supply. And then they settle down by the roadside, have a nice evening, maybe a little bit of chai. The hours go by. You get a little drowsy and fall asleep. And in the narrative, there's nothing wrong with falling asleep. The wise ones and the foolish ones both fall asleep. I mean, it's, they're waiting. What, what, what do you expect? They're, they're waiting. And then at midnight, the cry goes up, here comes the groom. Now, some of you come from societies where you think, boy, that's really odd. Why don't, doesn't it say, here comes the bride? <laughs> in fact, if you read this account carefully, it doesn't even mention the bride. But, but, you know, some of us, some of us think, nice to see this, actually. In the West, when you read newspaper accounts of weddings, you know, then you get this long description of the glories of her dress and the taffeta this and the train that and the silk something else and she's the daughter of so-and-so and then down at the bottom of the report it says the groom was also present. <laughs> In this culture, it's a little different. You know, everything turns on him, and she, she, she's, she's part of the story. I mean, it's a wedding, but she doesn't even have to be mentioned because, because they're going to his place, and he's paying for it. If he's paying for it, then his name gets in the paper. <laughs> so the cry goes up, here comes the groom. And so everybody rouses, and they trim their wicks, and the, the lamps are burning. Except the lamps of the foolish virgins are sputtering out. They, they don't have any extra oil. And so they, they've got to go into town to, 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 to get some oil, to the shop where the oil is sold. And of course, all the shops are closed. So they bang on the door, and maybe the shopkeeper's upstairs, and they bang and bang and they bang, and they, he, they won't give up. And finally, he comes down, all right, all right, all right. Why don't you wait till the morning? We need it now. And they finally, they finally get some oil, and, and then they go back and try to join up with a party. And by that time, the procession is already gone. It's already in the closed compound of the groom. They rush up and try to get in. And the gatekeepers say, sorry, too late. Gate's closed. Who are you anyway? Gate crashers? <laughs> and then the lesson is drawn. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Do you see the lesson? The third lesson is, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who know the Master's coming may be long delayed. So the first lesson, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by the Master's return. Number two, wait for the Lord Jesus as stewards who must give an account of their service, faithful or otherwise. And number three, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who know the Master's Coming may be long delayed because the only difference between the wise, five wise and the five foolish virgins is that the wise virgins were prepared for a long delay. It's the only difference. Now, number four is the one we're looking at. Number five, we don't have time for this evening at all. Number four, let me tell you what it is, and then we'll look at it a little more closely. Wait for the Lord Jesus as slaves commissioned to improve their master's assets. Let me repeat that. Wait for the Lord Jesus 
as slaves commissioned to improve their master's assets. In other words, the thought goes beyond simply being ready or performing one's duty or being prepared for a long delay. Now it's you've got to improve the master's assets. So what I shall do first of all is to ensure that we understand the parable and then reflect with you a little bit on what it means for our lives. Now there are a couple of things that need explanation before we go any farther. First, why is this called in some Bibles the parable of the talents and in other Bibles the parable of the bags of gold? The reason is because what the rich man distributes to these slaves is called in Greek a talenton, which sounds like the English word talent. And so it came across in the King James Version and other early versions, it came across as talent, the parable of the talents. But when we think of talents, we're thinking of somebody who plays the violin well like the lady tonight or somebody who can count up numbers in their head or somebody who can sing appropriately or maybe a talent of, of, of brilliant computer programming, well, whatever, whatever, some kind of talent. But a talenton in Greek is a measure of weight. It's a measure of weight of money, either silver or gold. A lot of silver, or it could be gold itself. If it was silver, the weight included 6,000 denarii. Now, a denarius is enough money to pay a laborer for one day. So 6,000 denarii, you're looking at something like 10 years of pay for a laborer. That's quite a lot of money. That's if it's a silver talent. Almost certainly, for various reasons, this is a gold talent. In which case, this was worth millions. Each talent was worth millions and millions and millions. And he distributes five talents to one, two talents to another, one talent to another, according to his perception of their capability. That's what we're told. The second thing that you need to know in order to understand this parable is that Although our English versions prefer to call these people servants, the word used is slaves. And in this case, you must see that they're slaves to make sense of the story. You'll see that in a few moments. These are slaves. Now that does not mean that Jesus is recommending slavery any more than earlier, in the earlier parable, he was recommending theft when he compares Jesus' return to the coming of a thief in the night, he's not recommending thievery. And when he compares Jesus' return here to the way a master treats his slaves or does not treat his slaves, then he's not recommending slavery. It's an analogy, and it's important to find out how the analogy works. Now, you need those two details to make sense of the story. So what happens? The kingdom of heaven now is like a man going on a journey, and he calls his slaves to them and entrusts his wealth to them. So they're supposed to look after it and, 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 and produce wealth from it. He distributes it, each according to his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once, notice, at once, eager, and put his money to work. Now, 
That does not mean he went to the stock exchange and put his money to work. There were no stock exchanges in the ancient world. If you wanted to take a lot of money like this and work it, then you had to buy a business, a fishing smack, or a farm, a vineyard, a business. That means you gotta run it, you gotta find the workers, and invest, and be wise, and watch the weather, and arrange the sales, and this is a lot of work. This is not just being shrewd, making the right investment, and hoping the market turns in the right direction. You know, pork bellies, or bond market, or whatever. It's not gonna be like that, this is work. And if you have five of these bags of gold, you've got millions, and millions, and millions, and millions, and millions, and millions of of units of money in order to, in, in order to, 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 to that, that you must be responsible for. And over the time, he doubles his profit. He doubles his, his assets, rather. The man who had received two likewise doubles his. The man who had received one went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, we're told, now that reminds you again of the previous parable. I said that each one picks up some of the lessons from the last one. Parable of the virgins had, had a long delay. So after a long time, he comes back. He returns and he settles accounts with them. So the one brings in 10 bags of gold. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And the master replies, well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So, what does the master say? First he says, in effect, you've worked hard, but let me tell you, what you've done so far is small potatoes. I'm gonna put you in charge of something really big. I'm gonna give you a real job. And then he says, come and share your master's happiness. And then you realize the entire model of master and slave is breaking down. A master does not come back and say, come and share your master's happiness. He says, rather go and get my slippers. I want supper at 6.30. I got friends coming tonight. Do you, you see? He just tells the slave off. Instead, this master says, come and share your master's happiness. Everything that makes me happy is yours as well. It'll make you happy too. And meanwhile, I'm gonna give you a job that's really fun, big time responsibility. Now I said earlier this afternoon that there are different images for what the new heaven and the earth will be like. One of them is increased responsibility. Not sitting around in a white nightshirt playing a harp. <laughs> there are other visions as well. Great choir singing. Rest labor. Other visions yet again. There, 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 are, there, there are times of, of great praise to God and and the visio day, seeing God himself face to face, finally at last, the supreme joy. So many ways of thinking of the new heaven and the new earth. One of the things that we can do to have people hungry to get there is to paint before people's eyes the portraits of the new heaven and the new earth that scripture actually gives. And one of them is right here. One of the things that God will say to you who have been working away in your Do you have a hand mic? I think the battery's dying here. One of the things that God will say to you 
is that the work that you've done for me here has been fine. I'm, I'm grateful. I want you to share your master's happiness, but apart from all of that, I'm going to give you more work to do, spectacular work to do. The new heavens and the new earth will be a place where there is increased... Why don't we just get this done right? That's another problem the Apostle Paul never had. <laughs> At least that one I can't blame on my short-term memory. So what he does say then is there'll be increased responsibility and pleasure in it and joy in the consummated kingdom. That's what he says. Then the second servant comes, the second slave comes, and he's doubled his assets as well. And the master says exactly the same thing. Then in verses 24 and 25, you find a rather different response. Now the man who has been entrusted with one talent comes and says, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now, the charge launched by the wicked slave is that the master is exploitative, grasping, and using the labor of others for his own gain. Perhaps putting the servant, the slave, in an invidious position. If, if the slave is successful, the slave gets none of it. If the slave fails, he's held accountable. He, he, he can't win. That, that's not fair. And some of us, when we hear this story, we think, well, he does have a point. He, he does have a point. Surely, surely fair labor laws mean that he should get more of the return, shouldn't he? And, and, and so far from siding with the master, we, we view the master as a bit harsh. But what you have to remember to make this story ring true to the culture in the first century is this is not a trade union operation. This is a slave. And that's not justifying slavery, but this is a slave in the story. And the fact of the matter is, is that a slave owes his matter, master obedience. If he doesn't obey, then there are terrible consequences. He charges his master with injustice and exploitativeness but a slave is owned property. A slave is to do what his master tells him. Do you, do you see? Not to do so is to risk the master's wrath. This is not a trade union operation. And in a somewhat analogous way then, Christians must recognize that as we wait for the master's return, we're not a trade union operation. If we've bowed to the lordship of Jesus, we say Jesus is Lord, then we owe him his due. Not to obey him, not to be eager to give him his due, is already a way of thumbing our noses at him and singing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. <laughs> did, did you see? You, you can't do that without, in fact, denying the lordship of King Jesus. The fact of the matter is that a Christian owes it to his master to increase the master's assets. That's why we're here.
And to claim that what we're doing is, well, maybe not increasing the master's assets, but at least hiding them in a hole somewhere and preparing them, what it really shows is that our hearts are so hardened, we're not looking for what is good for the master. We have, we, we, we have no passion to improve his assets. We don't even have the courtesy of putting the money in the bank and hoping for at least a little bit of interest. No, we're just hoping to get through this without any trouble and no work and no increased assets and no increased responsibility, just sort of sneak in there. But what this slave overlooks is that he is a slave. So the master judges him by his own standards and he is destroyed. So let me conclude. Presupposed in this parable is that Jesus' followers, his slaves, joyfully recognize their roles of responsibility. And that's why their conduct is different. They want to please their master. It's a pleasure to increase his assets. We want the kingdom to advance. We want Jesus to be praised. We want the assets of the church, not the finances, the spiritual assets of the church to multiply and bring glory to the master. And our task, while we wait for Jesus to return, is the improvement of the master's assets, not our own. In other words, the foolish virgins failed from thinking that their part was too easy, and so they didn't prepare. The wicked slaves here fail from thinking their part is too hard, so they don't try. But instead, our job as Christians, as we wait for the return of Christ, is joyfully, gratefully, to improve our master's assets as the slaves of the living God. In full knowledge that on the last day, the master will say to us, well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful over a few things. I'm, I'm going to give you some big time responsibilities now. Come and share your master's happiness. Let us pray. So grant, Lord God, that we may learn to live with eternity's values in view. Never weighing things by the categories and criteria of this broken world. But eager above all things to wait with patience and perseverance for the Master's well done on the last day. What grace is this? He calls us to himself and gives us all we need, strengthens us for the task, and then praises us for work that he has enabled us to do. Oh Lord God, forbid that our approach to all of our life in the kingdom of God should bear in mind the sheer joy and privilege and responsibility of improving the master's assets for his glory and his people's good. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Dr. Carson, thank you for serving us so well this evening with, with God's Word. Let us show our appreciation. Well, I hope this time has been an encouragement uh, to you as it has for me. But it is only fitting that we respond both in prayer and in song. So if I could invite up Pastor Steve Jennings to come up to the front. Steve is the senior pastor of Emmanuel Church of Fujera. And we'll have Steve pray for us as we leave this place. After Steve prays, we will sing our final song and you will be dismissed. Steve, please lead us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 